and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this week by Veredas and their UK distributor Zebra. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I hope everyone's having a good week. I have to say it's not the best weather where I live at the moment, so I've been quite pleased that my competitions are over for the season. And uh, I hope those of you who are still getting out and about have good wet weather clothes and rugs for your horses to keep everything dry. Our interview this week is with Yasmin Ingham. We find out just what it's like to become a venting world champion at 25 years old. It was just a moment of like disbelief, I think, to start with. Um, you don't quite believe it's it's actually happened, but the, the emotion from everybody is like a moment that I'll never, ever forget. I'll be talking to our news team about proposed changes to eventing rules and work to increase diversity in the horse world. Plus, we'll review the year's final five-star, which took place last week at Poe. Finally, veterinary equine behaviourist Dr Gemma Pearson will give us her insight on emotions in horses. The biggest thing to look for is muscular tension. You know, look at the eye, look at the ears. The muzzle may become longer, so the corner of the lip gets drawn back. The chin may become more prominent. So, brush out that mane, let's get going. Well, I am delighted to introduce our guest for this week, and it is none other than the new world eventing champion, Yasmin Ingham. It's pretty great when the only introduction you need is world champion. How are you doing, Yas, and how does that title feel? I'm very well, thank you. It's um, still sinking in. Um, it's definitely incredible to have the title of world champion, so it's it's just only starting to sink in now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been about a month since that incredible week at the World Championships out in Pretoni. How have things been since you got home? Has it been busy? Has there been a lot of media interest and that sort of thing? Yes, there's been a lot of media interest with um, interviews and magazine articles, um, just trying to make the most of it because it's not every day you become world champion. So I definitely want to try and do as much as I can and um, just enjoy the moment for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk about that week in Italy and let's start sort of at, at the beginning. What were you up to when you got the call up for the British squad and you heard that you were going to be making the trip out to the championship? Well, I was actually at world-class training at Aston La Walls um, when I got the call from Dickie Waygood. Um, I was sort of expecting a call, whether it was good news or bad news, I wasn't to know. Um, but I made sure that I had my phone sort of on me, you know, most of the time and it was on sort of loud. So if I could, if it was Dickie, then obviously I would answer it very quickly. Um, and I was in a psychology session actually, um, just with, um, Joe Butch, who does our uh, world-class psychology. And I had a call in my pockets and I sort of quickly pulled it out thinking, oh, I, I wondered if it's Dickie. <laughs> and um, it was one of my friends and I sort of put my phone back in my pockets. I'm sorry, Joe, carry on. I'm just expecting an important phone call. Um, and about 20 minutes later, I had another ring and I thought, oh, I hope this is it. And um, it was Dickie and he sort of answered the phone. He's um you know hello how are you small talk to begin with um and then he just kind of came out with it straight away he just said um you're going to Italy and it's just a moment that you can't really prepare yourself for because I really hoped and dreamed that those would be the words that he would um tell me but until you sort of hear them in real life it doesn't actually feel real so 
as soon as I'd had the call, it was obviously all embargoed until it was released um, officially. So I had to keep a very straight face and not tell anybody. And um, obviously I was able to tell uh, Banzai's owners and um, Sue and Jeanette and my family. So that was quite nice to share the news with them. But apart from that, it was all very um, quiet for a few days afterwards. Yeah, and uh, it must have been a hard one being at that uh, being at that training and, and sports psychology session. Did you have to sort of go back into the session and uh, and, and not mention what had just what you're just been told? Exactly. Yes, yeah. so I had to go back <laughs> into the session, and um, obviously, I couldn't really wipe the smile off my face that instantly. Um, and Joe just said, "Is everything okay?" And I said, "Yes, everything is just fine." <laughs> <laughs> um, and I said, "I'm really sorry. I can't let you in on the news, but I'm sure." Um, it all will become apparent in the next few days. <laughs> <laughs> and between then and heading out to the championships, did you have much team training or getting together with the squad between those between those times? Yes, we did. We actually had um, two days down at Home Farm, which was our final um, training before we headed out to Bretoni. So we had um, dressage sessions um, with uh, David Trott, uh, which was fantastic. He's been a real great help um, in sort of test riding and really perfecting the movements. Um, and then I had a jumping session as well with um, Chris Bartle and Dickie as well. Um, so we jumped sort of a decent course and timed ourselves as well. So we tried to sort of replicate what we'd be doing out in Bretoni um, to an extent. Um, and then it was great to sort of spend time and get to know my other team members um, who were going out to Bretoni on sort of a more of a personal level as well, because, you know, you only really cross paths sometimes at the events and you don't really get to chat much. So it was actually lovely to get to know them a little bit better and um, have a bit of a laugh as well. We had some team building exercises that were just really good fun. Um, I really enjoyed it. And it was it was really nice because obviously I'm youngest of the bunch and it was my first senior team they all made me feel really welcome and um yeah just really got me involved so I really appreciated that I want to know what kind of team building you did tell us well we did um we did some water polo actually which was really fun so we had um a groom's team um a rider's team and then a staff team so obviously that consisted of um Chris and Dickie and Liz Brown the vet uh, Vicky, the physio, um, and and everybody else. Um, so it was good fun. We were sort of playing against each other. And then we had the final. I think it was the staff against the riders or the grooms against the riders, I think it was. And it was just crazy how competitive it got. It was, it was almost <laughs> funny because people were getting quite, you know, into it. Uh, we had Roz and Oliver sort of on our first line by the net and they were doing some slam dunks and things with the ball so it was it was really good fun actually <laughs> it sounds like fun and <laughs> tell me about the logistics of getting out to Bretoni because I think I spoke to your groom Alison Bell during the event and I think that she said that you and Banzai Loire and Alison the three of you all traveled separately how did that sort of work and, and who arrived when yes it was um obviously logistically it's um it's difficult to plan sometimes but uh, the amazing guys um, within the British team helped do all the logistics and the planning, and they were amazing. Um, obviously, the riders, we all travelled separately from um, uh, London, obviously, was Tom and Laura and Dickie, and then from Manchester was me, Roz and Chris, and a couple of others as well went from Manchester. The grooms actually flew out a lot earlier in the morning than we did because um, they had to be there to meet the horses. Um, 
when they arrived at the venue. So they flew out at, oh God, I think it was like four or five o'clock in the morning from Stansted um, on the Monday morning it was. And then the horses actually left about nine o'clock from Stansted as well. So um, one of my very good guys on the yard, Owen, who works for us, uh, drove Banzai down to the airport very kindly because I've had to also leave for Manchester very early. So we're kind of all going off in different directions. But no, we have such a good team surrounding us and everyone sort of made sure we're all where we were meant to be at the right time. So (laughs) yes, we got there in the end. (laughs) You all made it and we're reunited. And once you got out there to Pretoni, where were you staying for the week? We stayed in a lovely hotel, um, which was sort of 20 minutes off site. And it was overlooking a beautiful lake. Um, Not that we got to sort of enjoy it that much because we were so busy with um, obviously riding and walking the course and doing all the important stuff. But we did actually manage to get down to the lake one afternoon um, to go and have a bit of a swim and stuff. And it was lovely. So it was nice to have that bit of downtime just to relax and um, try and take your mind off the the pressure and the stress that we sort of were under. But no, the the hotel was was very, very nice. And they looked after us really well with um, good food and and the accommodation was lovely as well. Yeah. And how easy was it to sort of adapt to that environment and that setup? Because obviously, when you go to an event, normally, you'd presumably be used to staying in your lorry. And that's quite a different setup to be staying off site and in a hotel. Did that sort of affect your mental preparation at all? Did you find it quite easy to be flexible and adapt to that quite different setup? Yeah, I quite enjoyed it, actually. Um, It was really nice and quiet. It was mainly for the riders um, and then the, the team staff and trainers um, and support team were there. And then a few owners as well were, were in the same hotel. So it was quite nice and really relaxed atmosphere. And um, everyone would sort of have dinner together at night and uh, we were able to sort of switch off. Um, and then I was staying obviously on my own in the in the hotel room. So I was just kind of, I quite liked my own company at times. So it was, it was quite nice actually. I was felt very relaxed and I adapted to it really easily. <laughs> Excellent. And who else was sort of in, in the Yasmininham camp out in Pretoria? I know that your mum, Leslie, was there. Who else was there supporting you? We had um, a bit of a Isle of Man sort of uh, team, actually, that came out to support. So I had my, my mum and dad, so my brother and my boyfriend, Jamie, they all came out, obviously. And then I had my auntie and uncle and then a few family friends that sort of liked to follow me also came out to support and they were just fantastic you could actually spot them a mile away because they were all wearing these um, really tall top hats that had GB flags on them. <laughs> so, um, but they weren't hard to miss and they just had the best week. You know, they sort of said from the off, you know, we, we don't mind, you know, what happens or, you know, you just do your best and we'll be there to support you. And obviously when we, we won the gold on the last day, I think they were just absolutely ecstatic. They were just delighted and we had the best time and I think they actually really made the atmosphere as well so I really enjoyed having um all the supporters as well as everybody um back on the Isle of Man um they were all watching the live stream and cheering me on and sending lovely messages and yeah it means a lot to have um such a huge support from all my friends and family and especially um friends and family back here on the Isle of Man as well so yes it it meant a lot to have them all behind me yeah 
And how were your nerves? I know when uh, we were at Kentucky out in the spring and uh, you said after the event that you'd basically barely eaten all week. Uh, how, how was that in Petoni? Were you able to enjoy any pizza and pasta or was it, was it a similar situation? Actually, I definitely felt less stress and pressured. I don't know, it was, had a different feel to it. Although it was obviously feeling very pressurised to be on my first senior um, squad and to be at the world championships is, you know, already I wanted to try and do my absolute best and, and make sure that I did my role. And, you know, there's quite a lot of responsibility as well uh, that comes along with it. So I, I definitely felt that. But also I knew that I had to enjoy it because that's the main thing. As, as long as you're enjoying it, then hopefully the rest will, um, you know, the training that we've put in and all the events and preparation that we've done everything hopefully is is going to come together and um i think my mindset definitely helped me with the way i performed and that i was relaxed in the atmosphere so yeah it definitely helped i think yeah and when did you find out that you were going to be the individual rider in the squad and was that sort of what you were expecting yes i actually expected to be um the individual um, I think it made perfect sense. Um, I was the youngest. I was the least experienced of the bunch. Banzai probably, um, he'd only done one five-star and he'd done a couple of the four-star longs. So he's he's definitely, you know, he's, he's earned his place for sure. Um, but I think the other horses were a little bit more experienced. So I definitely respected um, the selector's decisions and I was happy either way whether they wanted me on the team or they wanted me as an individual I was quite happy and so once we'd found out um, it was I think it was just before trot up maybe or just after trot up we sort of they wanted to submit so um, it was all quite easy everyone was very happy and relaxed and actually after they had said that I was going to be the individual it it just made me feel right. This is, you know, this is our competition now. Obviously, I'll be still cheering on for the team and, and hoping that they all have successful um, rounds and things. But for myself, I'm going to really, really go for it now. So definitely had the bit between my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us a bit about Banzai's routine, sort of in the build up to the dressage from, from when you arrived. How many times a day were you riding him and what sort of thing were you, were you doing with him? So Banzai, he is quite a sharp character, but it, it's almost like he's not not naughty sharp, if that makes sense. Like, you know, he's not a booker or a, he doesn't mess around. Um, he's just quite sharp with the atmosphere and a new surrounding. He's quite sort of interested and inquisitive about what's going on and just sometimes might lose a bit of concentration. So actually the key with him is to bring him out of the stables um, little and often. So whether that just be for like a hand walk or a graze, just a hack or then a light school or a lunge or something like that, the more he is out and taking in what's what's around him, the better that he actually becomes. So um, he did lots of grazing, lots of rolling. And so he was um, well accustomed to his surroundings by the time it actually came to do his test. So um, I feel like we were already starting off on the right foot to go and do, um, to go and do our dressage. And you mentioned rolling. I know that's a thing that uh, Banzai likes to get involved with. There was one point when I was trying to get a picture of um, Alison, your groom, and Banzai. And uh, the, um, the the British press attaché, Rachel Dyke, sent me a message saying, Banzai has just rolled, so he's not available for photographing. <laughs> it's one of his favourites, <laughs> oh, isn't funny. it? 
It is actually, yes. He's um he's right at home in any field you put him in. He'll find the the biggest, dirtiest patch of mud or dust and um that will occupy him for hours. Um, I don't know what it is, but the dirtier he is, the happier he is. So actually, before his test, Alison said, you know, you can have one last roll, but then you're getting bathed and then you're having a hood on before your test. And she said, if you do a good test, you can roll afterwards. So it was quite funny uh, once he'd completed his test and done, done so well. Um, literally we took his tack off and obviously sponged him down a little bit and then we took him up to the grazing area and there was already quite a large pit of mud that he'd created previously and he just got straight down and he must have been rolling for about 10 minutes just trying to get as dirty as possible and it's quite funny because it's it's part of his character now Um, and we're all just we expect it all the time that he wants to get down and roll so it's quite funny really (laughs) (laughs) bless him well uh, he definitely deserved that uh, that role after his excellent dressage test and um, tell us about your preparations for the cross-country phase when did you first walk the course and, and what did you think when you first saw it We actually went out on a team course walk. Um, I believe it was Wednesday morning we first looked at it. Um, And I actually, me being sort of like a bit of an eventing geek, I had watched some previous footage um, of Protoni um, in past years. And obviously they've had championships there before. So I was sort of expecting um, the slide uh, that had been quite hyped up before we'd gone. Um, so I definitely has sort of been expecting that to be quite an interesting fence and combination. Um, I didn't quite expect it to come up quite so soon on the course. It was our first combination at fence seven. So I think um, I was quite happy to almost get that out of the way with <laughs> quite early on in the course. Um, but we all walked it as a team, as I said, and our first walk was very much a Um, just to have a general look around and not really walk any lines or any distances and things like that and um, my first view of it definitely was oh my goodness it is so undulating I don't think that you can quite see it on the footage in the camera but those hills were really really steep and both up and down and it just made obviously your approach to fences different it made your sort of preparation a bit different for each combination so it was very interesting. I don't think I've I've ridden around a course quite so demanding as Protoni. Um, but I think it's really amazing that Banzai is so adaptable, if that makes sense. He's he's very fast um on a big open galloping course like Kentucky, for example, and and Blenheim, but for him to um be so good on quite a twisty, I would definitely say it was very twisty and um, undulating track was really impressive. So I was very proud of him for coping so well with that. But in terms of the overall difficulty, I thought it was a a real championship track with plenty of places um, that could potentially cause problems. Um, Some really interesting fences that we wouldn't really meet on a normal event. So it was, yeah, there was lots of very interesting things going on on the course. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think he is, I always think, quite a quite a big horse, quite a rangy horse, but he's very well balanced. And I imagine that really helped him sort of in dealing with the camber and those ups and downs. Definitely did. Yes. Um, as you say, he is a very big, rangy, scopy horse um, with a huge stride. But actually, when it came to um, coming down the slide at fence seven, you almost had to come into the fence with enough pace and positivity and confidence that it would just sort of 
pop off the log at the top and then you had to really get them back on their hocks um, coming down that really steep slope um, to your B and C elements, which were those really, really skinny um, sort of like brush fences at the very bottom at the lip of the of the hill. And um, he was so polite. Um, he came back to me. He didn't fight. Um, he was so balanced. Um, yeah, I was I was impressed, actually, because I did think, you know, will this be a bit different because it really is um very very steep um and he was he was absolutely fine so I was really happy with that yeah and after that first team course walk how many more times did you walk the course who did you walk it with how did you sort of make your make your detailed plans for that cross-country phase my detailed plan um I definitely always I'm very very lucky to have um Chris Bartle who trains me as well um at home as well as at the competitions so um, I made my plan with Chris and he knows me and Banzai so well now that um, he's really helpful in terms of um, thinking about plan A and plan B and plan C and how each fence will ride and how he thinks Banzai will jump it. So um, I actually walked it five times in total. I walked once with the team, twice with Chris and then twice on my own, I think it was. Um, and I just took those, you know, each walk I would sort of build up and think right I'm going to actually finalize my plan now I was very open to options early on there was plenty of alternatives and a b and c and d and you could jump a b and then a different c or a different d so I think we kept a very open mind to start with but um obviously as we got closer to cross-country day I wanted to sort of firm up my plan and make sure I knew what I was going out to um, to do. And I think what we'd planned for Banzai worked really, really well um, and it suited him perfectly. So yeah, Chris is a huge part of my preparation uh, before the cross country. So I'm very lucky to, to have him sort of on board to help. Mm. And you were quite early to go on cross country day. Did you have a chance to watch any other riders? Did that affect anything you did at all? Or were you kind of stuck to your plan? I think when you have to go so early on, you do have to have your plan quite, you know, in black and white. I only was able to watch, say, the first five, I think it was, five or six. Um, I was actually gutted because I didn't get to watch Roz and I really wanted to watch her because she was first to go for the team. But I think it worked out that I was on course at the same time that she was. Um, so sadly, I didn't get to watch her because... Um, Obviously, I, I really look up to Roz and I think she's a fantastic rider and the partnership that she has with um, Lordships Graffalo is, is amazing. So I really wanted to try and watch them. But almost in a way, I'm glad that I didn't have all day to sit around and watch because it just makes you sort of go out there and get on with it. And um, it definitely helped me just to... Um, just think positively and not base my um, round off of anyone else that I'd seen and just stick to my plan. Um, there's nobody that knows Banzai better than I do on a cross country. And that's what Chris kept saying to me, you know, don't let anybody else's round influence what you're planning to do. So, you know, you know him best and you go out there and you've made your plan and you stick to it and you ride to it. So I'm really pleased that we we did that. Yeah. And once you'd finished your round, which obviously was fantastic, just a couple of seconds over to the time, what was the rest of the day like? Were you called on to give any insight to the rest of the team or anything like that? Did you get to watch what, what happened after your round on that day? 
it was quite nice to um, get Banzai back to the stable and make sure that he was um, okay and had everything that he needed and he had his ice on. He'd obviously gone out for a roll and um, I wanted to make sure that he was um, comfortable before I went out and watched. But really for the rest of the day, I was supporting the rest of um, my teammates who were going cross-country later on. Um, I spoke to a couple of them. Um, a couple of them sort of just asked how distances rode and how was that line. And I sort of gave my opinion if they wanted it because I would never want to sort of say, oh, it rode like this, but, you know, everyone's on a different horse. So you just never know how it'll ride for them. But a couple of them asked how certain things rode and I sort of said, oh, it, for me, it went like this, but stay positive. And yeah, it was just a great atmosphere, actually. Everyone was sort of there supporting each other and um, obviously wanted the best for the rest of the teammates. And yes, it was it was a much nicer day having finished earlier on uh, than it would have been sort of waiting all day. So um, yeah, I definitely uh, don't envy Oliver, who was last to go and he had all, all day to wait, but um, I'm sure he's well used to that by now. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And so into the final day, you had the trot up and then sort of the preparations for the show jumping. Who did you walk the show jumping course with? I walked the show jumping course uh, with Roz and Chris. And we are quite similar in ways, I would say, in our riding. So it was quite nice to um, have Roz's opinion on a couple of things as well. Um, and obviously, as I say, Chris um, knows me and Banzai so well and uh, knows how to get the best out of us, especially on the last day. I actually really enjoy the show jumping. Um, it's probably my favourite phase out of all three. So it was really nice to um, get stuck into that. Um, I think my initial thoughts when I walked the course was, wow, this is big. It was really, really big. I don't think I've jumped an eventing show jumping course like that for a while. Um, it was very technical. You had sort of some quite long related distances. And then you almost had some options. I think the course builder had sort of maybe dared you into taking a stride out in a couple of places and dared you to go on an inside line and whether it would pull off, you know, it was sort of down to you really. Um, and it was just being clever um, and trying to make up enough time, but not sort of fly down your distances and end up going flat in places. So um, there was definitely an element of um, being quite clever with the way you rode it. So um, I, I watched all morning, actually. I did watch quite a lot and obviously um, it was <laughs> the clear rounds were few and far between to start with. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is causing absolute chaos. Um, but it was funny because uh, Banzai's owners, uh, Sue and Jeanette, sort of said, oh, the bigger the better and the harder the better because they know that Banzai is a really good jumper and I feel very... Um, I feel very lucky that I'm sat on a horse that has got a lot of scope. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got to have an element of luck involved and you've got to ride it correctly. So I was just hoping that we could pull it off. So when it came down to jumping all round, um, the warm up arena was sort of behind the main arena and you couldn't really see in or you couldn't really see what was going on. There was there was no screens to look at or anything like that. So you don't, you don't just hear like a, a clap or a, ooh, or, you know, when someone had a fence down and I didn't really know who'd gone clear and who hadn't. And if I had any fences in hand or how far I'd drop if I had a fence. So I just tried to um, not think about anything like that and just continue with my warm up as I usually would with Chris. 
um, which is actually quite min- it's minimalistic um, for the show jumping. We don't tend to jump in too much or do too much work. It's all about sort of um, preserving his energy and um, just warming him up enough that, um, you know, he'll go out and be nice and loose and elastic in, in the arena. And he was. He I Obviously, I heard the crowd go mad when Roz jumped the clear round, so I thought that's good on Roz. Um, we had a similar plan as to how we were going to ride the show jumping with some lines and distances. Um, so I thought, right, I'm sticking to my plan. It's worked for Roz, so I just need to ride it correctly now. And it was, yeah, you could hear a pin drop. But as normal, I sort of blocked everybody else out and got on with it and um, just pretended that I was sort of in my arena at home jumping a course of fences. Um, and actually, I, I really enjoyed it as much as it was so nerve wracking and um, very stressful and highly pressured. He jumped so amazing. And it's such a pleasure and a privilege to sit on a horse that is just so talented. And I'm just over the moon that he showed everybody how amazing he was. And just the result that came with it was just absolutely cherry on top. Could not have imagined um, to have sort of finished at that point. It was silver medal position and we were all celebrating the silver medal. Um, but no, it was it was incredible to sort of have jumped that round on that sort of stage. Yeah. Definitely. And it was such such an incredible round. So assured there weren't really any, you know, there were, there were no heart and mouth moments, although the whole thing was a heart and mouth moment, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I after, do. <laughs> and after your round, obviously, Michael Young was the next in leading. Did you did you watch Michael? What happened? As I came out of the arena, um, we had obviously the stewards wanted to check the tack and um, check Banzai's boots and things. So um, once I'd gotten off and we'd got him checked and um, walked him away into the collecting ring, um, I didn't really, I thought, we you know, we'd secured silver. I mean, I was absolutely over the moon, like silver in the world. Like I could not have imagined that at all. So I was just celebrating that with everybody. And um, my mum came over and she said, um, Yaz, I think you should go to the ring and watch maybe, you know, you know, anything can happen. I'm thinking... Mum, you're absolutely mad if you think that Mickey's going to even have a fence down. You know, he's got this in the bag for sure. I've I've watched him many a time on Fisher Chipmunk and the relationship they have is um, very solid and he's a very good jumper and obviously Mickey's a fantastic show jumping rider as well. So um, I thought, you know, he's got this in the bag and he came down. It was much towards the end of the course, actually. Um, it was the final double um he rolled the first part of the double and I thought oh that's his one life um I don't think he'll use use another one or you know he doesn't have another one sorry um I didn't think he'd have another fence and just as he was going down that final line I thought god is he gonna have it or is it gonna go is he gonna have um you know just the one down and as soon as that plank fell um just everybody was going mad and and celebrating around me and um, it was just a moment of like disbelief, I think, to start with, um, that you don't quite believe it's it's actually happened. Um, but the the emotion from everybody is like a moment that I'll never ever forget. Just the happiness um, of obviously most importantly Sue Davies and Jeanette Chin, um, who own Banzai. Um, they've supported me for eight years, eight nine years now, I think it is. And to start with, we were just you know I was doing the, the juniors and the young riders and for them to have supported me up to this level and to have, have a world championship title is 
just um as I said it's the cherry on top so I was just delighted for them and delighted for Banzai and and my whole team the whole British team as well um everyone was just congratulating and being really supportive so um it was just an amazing atmosphere yeah and what happens after that I mean I know the answer to this to some extent from from being at the championship and seeing parts of what what happened but um you know you've won the world championships you got scooped off for some interviews medal ceremony press conference did you have to do dope testing like what happens in the sort of half an hour an hour after you become the world champion um, well, once Nikki had had the had the two fences down and and we were sort of confirmed as as gold, there was lots of interviews. Um, I had to talk on the live stream, I think it was, and then there was lots of other interviews. Then we had to get ready for the medal ceremony, so we um, we did the medal ceremony, and then as soon as I'd actually done that, there was a press conference in the press center, which. Um, we did along with all of the rest of the medal winners and the team medal win- medal winners as well. And then I sort of was hoping that we could be, you know, released to go and celebrate. And I had to go and do the dope testing, which was really frustrating because, um, you know, you kind of just want to go and celebrate with everybody once you've finished. But we had to go up and do that. And um, it did take quite a while and I haven't done it before. So it was all a bit alien to me as to you know, getting the samples and having to write out all the paperwork. It was quite time consuming. Uh, but once we'd done all that, all of my family and friends and support crew that had come to watch were just down at the main arena sort of celebrating with some bottles of champagne and things like that. So I actually went down and joined in with them and uh, we had a great time just sort of chatting about it and showing videos and pictures and um, talking to different people. It was It was really cool, actually. And then we I was supposed to be flying home that evening with um the team back to Manchester um and my family were all staying over another day they hadn't booked to fly back until the Monday um and my mum said to me earlier on in the week she said oh well what happens if you do well on Sunday you know do you not want to stay and I said well if I go and book another flight I'm gonna jinx it so no I'm gonna plan to go back on Sunday and then if it comes to it then I can change it and um, luckily um, Alex who was part of the GB logistics team she was so great and she said no you need to stay and have a party tonight with your family and enjoy it so she booked me another flight back on Monday uh, which was really good so I could enjoy the the Sunday night back with my family at there and um, they'd rented sort of an apartment place nearby so we'd had a bit of a party there which was really fun um, and just tried to enjoy the moment and celebrate together so that was that was really great. Yeah, well, good for Alex Van Twill there uh, doing the uh, logistics to get you the, uh, the, the that extra flight. Yeah, so this is going to be my last question. And I think it's something you're going to get asked a lot over the next 10 years or 20 years. But coming out of this and looking to the future, what does it mean to you and how does it make you feel? Do you feel hungrier now to have more success or does this take the pressure off? Because whatever happens in the rest of your career, you'll always have been world champion. It definitely makes me hungrier for um, more success. And yeah, it's a really really funny one, actually, because obviously with horses, it doesn't always go to plan. So really the the good days that you do have, it, it makes them even sweeter. And I'm just very, very lucky to have an amazing team. We all work very, very hard and put lots and lots of work in. Um, And I think when you have a 
such a good result like that, you've got to really celebrate it and make the most of it. But I think it's so exciting to think of what we could achieve in the future. Um, and obviously with um, Paris Olympics being two years away, it just makes me so um, excited and hungry and want to work even harder than I ever have before. So it's definitely massively motivating to have had this result and to have sort of, again, I'm, I'm still 25. I'm still trying to learn and, and pick up bits of information um, each, each event um, and take everything in. So very grateful to have been surrounded by lots of, of great people that have really helped me come on with my knowledge riding and, and being in a championship and being in that sort of atmosphere. Um, I've learned so much and I really hope that I can sort of take all that into our next couple of events. And yeah, as I said, I'm, I'm hungry for, for more, definitely. Oh, well, thank you, Yaz. It's been so fun to, to relive the week with you. I'm grinning all over my face all over again. Um, <laughs> so <it> was, am I. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a really fun week and congratulations again. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to tell us all about it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been lovely to, um, as you say, relive it. And I've been grinning like a Cheshire cat as well. So thank you very much. This week's Horse and Hound podcast is supported by Veredas and their UK distributor, Zebra. The Veredas boot collection ensures that your horse's legs are protected in the latest, most technically advanced, anatomically designed boots available on the market. No matter your preferred discipline, jumpers, eventers or dressage, Veredas has a horse boot designed for your horse. So I'm joined now by my colleague Gemma Redrup, who was out at the final five-star of the year at Poe last week reporting for Horse and Hound. How was it, Gemma? It was great. I love Poe. Um, the last time I went there was 2018 and it was the first time I went and everybody said, oh, you'll have a wonderful time. The weather will be lovely. You'll be able to see the Pyrenees. And it was freezing fog all week. So anyway, this week was better. It was lovely and warm and I did see the Pyrenees. And yeah, it was just, uh, it's, it's always just a lovely event, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. I haven't been there myself for a few years now, but um, it is a it is a great event. And uh, I know you had some delays at getting home, but hopefully that didn't put too much of a dampener on the week at the end. I made it. <laughs> eventually, 24 hours late, but I made it. Yeah, I did think when we were planning this last night, I wonder if Gemma's actually going to be home to do this or she's going to be you know, trying to podcast from an aeroplane. But you made it. We got you back. We, we, we yeah. sent you there. We got you back, which is all good. So tell us about what happened. Let's talk about the, the leaderboard. Talk down the leaderboard first up. Talk about our winner. Tell us who won. Yeah, so Janelle Price added another five-star win to her already quite long roll of honour. Um, she was riding Grappanera, who is a mare we haven't seen loads of. She was out for a year up until sort of the middle of this summer with an injury, but they, they just put in a really, really good jumping performances. And that was sort of the moral of the story the whole way through the competition. It most definitely it was not a dressage competition. She, she started off on a 30.1 30, 30 dressage, which actually put her in 13th. So... She climbed into the lead and, and um, yeah, that was very much the sort of how it was the whole week. 
Mm, I'm just looking at that leaderboard and the top four in the final results all came from outside of the top 10 after dressage. So interesting yeah. to see a competition where there was that much influence for the jumping phases. And she's a mare who's been quite tricky sometimes on the way up, isn't she? <laughs> she has scored in the 50s at one day events before. So she is, she's definitely, Janelle called us, you know, she was real, she's a real feisty mare, which of course as the type of horse that Janelle gets on really, really well with. But yeah, she's been, she has been known to score under 50% in her dressage tests before. Yeah, well, uh, Janelle said she'd always had faith in her. It was always a case of when, not if, we would see what a good horse she is. And this was obviously her weekend. Um, home side rider in second, Karen Fomeron Lagerhag. Um, I'm glad you pronounced that one for me, Pippa. <laughs> <laughs> I just get in there. You know, you can just call yeah. him Karen um, yeah. <laughs> with Triton Fontaine. Um, what was the story sort of of his week and, and put that winning or that second place in context for us? Yeah, so he he started off in 19th after the dressage and a 31.4, but then jumped clear inside the time cross country and only four riders managed to do that around the Pierre Michelet design track. So it's the, top, the optimum time was 11 minutes. Kareem finished two seconds under that and then he was just one second over in the show jumping. So he, so yeah, which added 0.4 of a penalty. So he, he, um, he actually only finished 0.5 adrift of Janelle. So although they came from, these these people in the top 10 came from well outside the top 10 um, after the first phase, it did still end up a close competition. Mm. And I love the quote in your report where Karim said that this was a revenge on the season because I think he had some problems earlier in the year, didn't he? Yeah, it's sort of been a bit hit and miss for him this year and with this horse as well. He's sort of, I think, three of his five internationals up until Poe, they actually didn't complete. So, but it's a horse, he was 12th individually um, on it at the Olympics last year. So it's a, clearly a good horse. Um, and I think, yeah, like you just said, he was glad to post a good you know a very good result um at the end of what's been probably not a very straightforward year mm. and then we had two young youngish british riders in third and fourth really great to see them pushing through tell us about those results yeah hect Payne, who um hect's lovely and he's sort of been working hard for a long time now um and he finished third on a grey called dynasty who was produced initially by william fox pitt and hector took over the ride i think it was 2015 or 2016 and um he's jumped around badminton this year with him and hector was saying they were considering taking him to burley and then he decided oh no well actually let's go to poe because we might be slightly more competitive there and it's paid off yeah, definitely. That third place, really impressive to see a young British rider right up on the podium. And heartbreakingly, David Dole led actually after the, the cross country, looked like he was going to win it, um, which would have been quite a result after sick that badminton on Galileo New Mode um, ended up fourth at the final show jump down, Gemma. I know. It was honestly, it was heartbreaking. <laughs> I don't think there was one person um, that was watching their round that wasn't willing David to win. It would, you know, Janelle winning is a lovely story, but it would have it would have been a really lovely story if, if he could have managed to um, score his first five star win. Uh, understandably, he was gutted, but you know, fourth at five star, like you say, he was sixth at badminton this year. I, I, definitely, his time will come. I've, I've no doubt of that. Mm, it's great to see him really backing up that badminton result and be exciting to see what he can do there in the spring. Um, and just looking on down the leaderboard, lots of interesting stories. You choose where yeah. you want to go next, Gemma. Who else do you want to talk about? Well, I'll go to um, 
the fifth fifth place rider, that was Caroline Powell, New Zealand's Caroline Powell. That was a really special performance because on the Green Acres Special Cavalier because it's a, just a nine-year-old mare. And she she scored 27.7 in the dressage, which put them eighth then, then added eight time faults cross country and show jump clear. And I really think Caroline's got something. I've got a very talented horse on her hands there and is definitely one that I think people should look out for in the future. Mm, and uh, Cavalier Royale mare out of a out of a mare by touchdown, so yeah, definitely very much bred in in the purple Irish eventing breeding there. And it'd be lovely to see Caroline back at the top level. It's been a while since we've seen her, yeah, riding at, yeah you know, on championship teams and so on. I want to pick out a couple more British riders who were in the top ten. Bubby Upton in sixth on Cannavaro. We had on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago talking about that uh, the, this this run coming up at Poe. So it's great that worked out for her. Um, you can go back and listen to that interview, listeners. And Emily King in eighth on Valmy Biat. So a good result for her too, Gemma. Yeah, definitely. And they're both putting five-star falls behind them on both those horses. So Bubby um, had a not very nice fall at, not that you can have nice falls, I suppose, but um, a fall at Le Moulin five-star on Cannavaro in June. And that was sort of why he had an enforced 10 weeks off in the build-up to here, which obviously wasn't ideal. So fair play to her and her team for, for getting him there and him going so well. And yeah, uh, Emily King fell late on in the course at Babington when she'd been going so well with Valmy Bayer. So it was nice redemption for them both to yeah to finish in the top ten this week. Mm, and nice for uh, to see a, a Biat's horse going going well in France. Philip Brivois, who who bred, bred that horse that Emily rides, I saw in some of the pictures. He uh, likes yeah. to travel around following the horses that he bred, even if he doesn't still own them. Yeah, he. I saw him giving him lots of pets through the week. <laughs> <laughs> I think he does still have a, an ownership, at least share in this horse. But uh, it's great yeah. to to see him following so closely. Of course, Vondredi Biat's Kitty King's lovely grey, another of those Biat's horses, and Oslo Biat's, who uh, was a po winner himself. Self, so mm-hmm. quite the stable that Philippe has there. Gemma, before we let you go, I want to just talk to you about the naughty issue of the week, which was mim clips. Um, yeah, give us a bit of a rundown of um, of why this became why this became controversial. So there was a mim clip on the on a corner fence um, in the middle of a, a water complex, sort of two thirds the way around the course. It's fence twenty one B. And it was activated nine times, um, you know, which when there's 47 cross-country starters, that's quite a large percentage. Some of those activations undoubtedly saved horses falling. But re-watching it, I did think that some were incredibly unlucky. You know, it's like they gave it the lightest of touches and it came down. And the biggest victim um, from all of that was Switzerland's Felix Fogg, who was riding Calero. He was actually in the lead after the dressage. And he, yeah, he activated this MIM clip, which obviously you then get 11 penalties and it it dropped him out of contention. He was quite impassioned on an Instagram post on Sunday evening saying that he totally understands that the sport has to get safer and it's good that there's that progress in it. But um, he is frustrated, basically, um, about it. And um, he said the time should be finished where riders had to look back across country to see if a fence has fallen. And the course designer, Pierre Michelet, didn't entirely disagree with Felix. He said safety is paramount. It's one of those things and riders have to ride with that in mind. Some incidents on the Saturday at Poe with the MIM clips did prevent serious falls, whereas others were more like a fence going down and the show jumping and those riders were harshly sanctioned by the 11 penalties. So it's interesting. 
We've seen two dressage leaders actually lose a five-star this year on a MIM clip penalty with Kitty King having had a similar problem at Burley. So I, uh, yeah. yeah, and it's one we also talked about quite a lot at Bicton at the one-off five-star last year. So I'll be really interested to see whether that goes anywhere or whether it's, you know, that rule is, is, is there to stay. Um, uh, it's, I think what a lot of riders were sort of saying was that the appeal system should be reintroduced it's been scrapped in recent years and they would like to see it reintroduced um because they don't want to see the safety device you know taken away and obviously that's not going to happen but they just think each each activation of a of a tangible device should be taken on a case-by-case basis Mm, it's a really tricky one because I can see that giving somebody officials the power to make that decision can introduce more controversy and make for difficult relations between riders and officials. The other argument I think is that we're trying to make the sport spectator friendly. We're trying to be able to give a result relatively quickly. And if at the end of a day's sport, the grand jury have to sit down and go through, you know, 15 videos of people knocking down frangible pins, we're not going to get a quick result, which is yeah. difficult for the media. You know, the live stream's gone off by the end of that. And particularly at competitions maybe where the cross country is the last phase and that would be really quite a tricky thing not to know who your winner is as they come over the finish line so I can see arguments both ways on this one yeah I'm just glad I'm not the one that has to make any decisions around it (laughs) no it's definitely a tricky one and definitely interesting well Gemma thank you so much anything else you want to mention before we sign off from Per and sign off from five star sport for the season no, just thank you very much. I've had a great year. Thank you for sending me to some lovely events and I hope I get to do support next year. <laughs> well, it's been fun. It's been fun to share a lot of them with you on the podcast listeners, including, of course, our daily podcasts that we had from, from Badminton and Burley, as well as these uh, weekly reviews. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you very much. So I'm joined now by two members of the Horse and Hound news team. We have our news editor, Eleanor Jones, with us. How are you, Eleanor? I'm good, thank you. A bit windblown. Um, I had a bit of a, you know, this morning I'd arranged for it to be my big mare's day off because the weather forecast was horrific. And then when I turned around, she went flat out and bucking up the field. I was like, yeah, that was a good call. (laughs) (laughs) Better bucking up the field than bucking with you sitting Exactly. (laughs) And we also have with us our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How are you doing, Lucy? I'm good, thank you, Pippa. I've been baking, which is a huge surprise to me because I um, I don't very often do it. What was even more surprising is they came out um, out the oven edible. So yeah, it's been a bit of a win of a weekend, really. What no horses, make? but otherwise. <laughs> That's what I want to know. What were you baking? Um, blondies. Mm. Uh, yeah. So they are dangerously close to my desk. Um, (laughs) I think it's always been a good thing. I've never been particularly good at baking. But um, Mm. yeah, I'm trying to put them out of my mind. This is when you want to be back in the office. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Bring us the blondies, Lucy. (laughs) Unfortunately, listeners, podcast is not a medium by which you can send cakes Mm. or other baked goods. Well, when Lucy is not baking blondies, obviously she has to write news. And this week, Lucy... You've been writing about potential changes to the FEI venting rules. These are going to be voted on at the FEI General Assembly, which is from the 10th to the 13th of November, so just a week away. And one of these potential changes is around cross-country course designers. Tell us about that one first, Lucy. Yeah, so this is quite interesting. There's been a, some debate going on around this for a while now, um, and 
in the first draft of rules, there was a suggestion in there um, that course designers should be rotated at championships every two years. Um, and then there was quite a lot of back and forth with quite a lot of nations involved in that discussion as well. This had also followed on from some discussions at the FEI Sports Forum in April too. Um, and some concerns raised there about, you know, sort of concerns over costs, the value of building relationships, potential loss of income and experience as well. And also worries that perhaps less experienced designers could be put in positions they're not ready for. So the end result that we've got um, is a the final draft rule that's going to go to the General Assembly, as you said, um, in November. And it goes beyond championships and sets a time limit on course designers tenure at any four or five star event but it's a much wider time limit if that makes sense so it says that a course designer must not officiate at the same venue for more than six consecutive years at four star short and four star long including championships and for more than eight consecutive years at a five star long and the idea behind that really is to encourage more designers to come up through the sport and break into those higher levels uh, and it also it's important to say as well that the requirements in suggested to start as of 1st of January 2023 and will not apply retroactively so it's kind of going forward and giving a bit more time to allow for people to come up through the system and not setting time limits that are going to instantly um, cause problems um, for you know people that are already in positions. So some compromises being reached mm. there, it sounds like. And there are also some proposed changes around scoring of, of events. Give us the detail about those. Yes, so this is what happens in the event of a tie in the final results. Uh, it's something that you don't really think of until it happens at an event. Um, and we've seen it happen at a couple of high profile events this year. We've seen ties uh, in, the, in the sort of top end of results uh, at Protoni and also at Blenheim. So at the moment, those are split on the best cross-country performance. So, you know, someone who's got a zero sheet on cross-country will be placed above someone who has perhaps a time penalty. And again, in the current rule, it's also decide then goes to the person that's closest to the optimum time. What's being proposed here is that the result will go in favour of the competitor with the best dressage mark on points. So essentially it's negating any rounding up that happens in, in the scoring. Uh, it's so, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, it's, again, it's going to be something that we probably won't see at every event, but will be notable noticeable when you start looking and thinking, oh, why is that person higher than that one when they're on the same score? So yeah, it's interesting. I think it's really um, interesting that we are changing the whole phase that we're going to say is the most mm. important phase when it comes to changing a tie. But to be inside the time, obviously, is penalty free. And that's what most people think about. It takes a very particular competitor to think, oh, I must be the closest to the time just in case. And I think, for example, at the World Championships, Ros was early in the day. She was thinking about a team score. She came in very comfortably inside the time, job done. Tim Price went at the end of the day. He knew he was potentially going to be on the same score as Ros and Boyd Martin so he had he and Boyd both had that advantage and knew that they really needed to get as close to the time as possible so in a way that wasn't just about being the best it was about the tactics of where they fell mm. in the competition so in a way maybe just best dressage score is fairer but then of course there can also be disparities in dressage scoring depending on where you're drawn in the competition and you know there's, there's never going to be a perfect system is there but it's um, an interesting one they're looking at moving it away from cross country into dressage as the divider. Yeah, it is. And it, like you said, it, it does take a, when you think riders have got so many factors going on in their head and making those sharp decisions all the time to then think, 
how close do I need to be to the optimum time, especially at that level when a lot of the time you'd be thinking, am I going to be inside the optimum time? It does add that. Plus the fact that you don't want to, you don't want to make that, well, it's a very fine line to be making sure you're bang on that and not ticking a second over, which is very easy to happen. Um, So yeah, sharp judgment calls there. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, you'd always want to sort of be four or five or three to five, maybe seconds Mm. inside to be safe on that in case, you know, you'd started your watch a second later. I did an event myself at the end of last year, just to be 80, where I came across the finish line and I thought that I'd been maybe two or three seconds over. And it turned out, I think that I'd been 10 or 12 seconds over. And I still don't know what happened there. I felt like I started my watch at the right time and it didn't matter. I wasn't going to be, you know, particularly well placed. And I don't think it, you know, I was low, I was in the low placings and I don't think it even affected my placing. So it wasn't a drama, but obviously I'm not riding at the world championships when uh, you know those margins are super tight and there's much more at stake than you know me going home with an eighth place rosette yeah quite it's interesting for sure. And finally, Lucy, on this uh, on this story, we are also looking at potentially tweaks to qualifications in eventing. Uh, a quick rundown of what's being proposed there. Yes, I feel like this is something I've been talking about and hearing discussed for quite a long time because it's something that has come out of research really and sort of data analytics and things like that. So what we know is that when horses return to top level competition, FEI statistics show that there is a significant increase in a horse fall when they've been out of the four and five star level for 18 months plus. So there's a new rule being that will be voted on here, uh, which covers that, you know, return to play really. Um, And it suggests that horses returning to um, those four and five star levels must complete an event at a level below now there's a table in the rule book about exactly what because it it is different you know if you're competing at four star short or four star long um five star you know it's not just you have to go and do one level below um there's a little bit of leeway and different in differences in there um but it's the principle really um that you are stepping back before you step back up so yeah i think that's quite interesting well, thank you, Lucy. There's a lot of lot of detail in those proposed changes and we'll see what happens at the General Assembly. And before we let you go and speak to Eleanor, we talked last week about another eventing story, changes at British eventing, dropping balloting from the entry system and a different way of running the fixtures list. You've been gathering a bit of reaction on that this week. Just give us a quick rundown on what the follow on is there and what sort of reaction this is getting. Yeah, so it's actually, it's been broadly positive. I spoke to a range of organisers and there's support for the decision to get rid of the ballot. I mean, it gives everyone certainty, whether you're an organiser, obviously a lot of our organisers are involved in the sport in other ways as well. So, you know, that's a a good thing from their point of view. Um, And also support for BE trying something new. Uh, Many will have seen there's been some discussion on social media this week. There was one event sharing frustration at not getting a third day. But it's important to say, you know, it's an ongoing process at the moment. The calendar that has been sent out to organisers is a draft for feedback and as a starting point for more changes and discussion. So, you know, it's not set in stone yet. And hopefully any issues that that draft has thrown up can hopefully be resolved. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, Lucy, for all those uh, those eventing stories. Eleanor, you have been writing about ongoing work to increase diversity in the horse world. And speaking to Sandra Murphy, she set up the BAME Equine and Rural Activities Focus Group. And sort of spinning off that, she's got a vision for a new centre, hasn't she? Tell us about that. 
Yeah, she's. Um, we, we have mentioned this idea before that it's a centre of excellence uh, for people from young, talented young riders from underrepresented communities. And the idea being that although there are lots of superb, say, inner city riding schools, this is aimed to be the next step. So as she said, it, it take them from maybe doing jumping 70 centimetres or doing prelim dressage to 110 or or riding at elementary level dressage. So it's that, as she says, it's bridging the gap between starting to ride and then going up to the to the next level. So hopefully it should fill a gap. And she and her committee of the BAME Equine and Rural Activities Focus Group have been putting in a lot of work um, to, to make it happen, really, which is great. Mm. And Sandra's involved in some other uh, areas at looking at increasing diversity too. What else is she involved in at the moment? So she has been appointed uh, by the Pony Club trustees as their ED, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion, that's EDI, advisor. And so she's going to events and doing a lot of work there. But she also was asked by the Pony Club to do a photo shoot for their Join Us page. And they took 15 Pony Club members for, who are from underrepresented communities. And they took lots of pictures, made a great video, and they're going to use some of those pictures sort of as, their, as part of their marketing and on, the, and on their website, which is brilliant. And who else did you speak to for this story? So I also spoke to Ashley Witchard, who has been, she's actually shortlisted for two of our uh, awards at the 2022 Horse and Hound Awards to do with her winning the Magnolia Cup at, at Goodwood this year. And she, at, at that race, she she took the knee and all her fellow jockeys did the same thing, which she said was a really powerful image. And she thought it might just be her, but was really pleased that all the other riders in the race uh, did the same thing which she she thought was really powerful but she she is obviously more in racing she's a work rider for Neil Mulholland but she believes there is definitely more action being taken and more time being given to considering the issue um and and she's thinking that one thing that would really help across across equestrianism is more unconscious bias training for organizations and, and maybe people like trainers and coaches um but yeah it, it seems i think the overall message is is that a lot of work's being done but of course there's still more to do mm. well thank you eleanor and thank you to lucy for joining us today too Dr. Gemma Pearson is Director of Equine Behaviour for the Horse Trust. She is a qualified veterinary equine behaviourist who splits her time between seeing clinical behaviour cases at the University of Edinburgh's Equine Hospital and ongoing research on this topic. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about emotional states in horses. Now, obviously, we've all been brought up to try not to anthropomorphise too much. You know, we don't want to infer emotions on horses that they're maybe not capable of um, experiencing. And I still see an awful lot of that. It's amazing how much, you know, riders and trainers still talk about the horse doing this because of that. And actually, you think that is really anthropomorphism. Um, that's not a route we really want to go down. But at the same time, there are certain things that we, we do understand about emotions in horses. And first of all, I'd say let's split it into to two different areas. So first of all, we talk about the horse's level of arousal. And this is almost like the horse's level of alertness. We can have horses which are have a very low level of arousal, which are very relaxed, and then have a very high level of arousal. Now, the other side of the, the kind of quadrant, if you like, is the affective state that the horse is in. So this is basically whether the horse is happy or sad. How do we know if a horse is happy? To be honest, we never will do. 
but we shouldn't let perfect be the enemy of good. Just because we can't measure something perfectly, it doesn't mean we can't have a good idea from other work that we've done. And I'm sure we all know the difference between a horse, you know, when it's um, eating its feed or grazing with its friend that's very happy compared to a horse that's very stressed. So on this basis, we start to put the two aspects together. So if we have a happy horse with a high level of arousal, that is what we might talk about as being excitement. And, you know, whilst we often talk about, you know, a happy horse with a low level of arousal being relaxed, that's great. But actually, if you're taking a horse around a cross-country course, you don't want them to be too relaxed. You've got to have two, you've got to have some adrenaline flowing. The horse's level of arousal has to be pretty high. It keeps them sharp. So then the other side of the coin, of course, is where we have a negative affective state, so unhappy horses. And again, we can have that with a high level of arousal. So that's horses that we might describe as stressed or with a low level of arousal. And that's where we might start to think about things like depression in horses or learned helplessness, whereby the horse looks really dull in its eye and they're not reacting to very much in the environment. Now, one of the reasons I say this is because as a behaviourist, a lot of the problems I see are because people are working with horses where their level of arousal is too high for what they're trying to achieve. And when the horse's level of arousal is too high, then they can't learn anymore. It's the same in people. There's actually a really nice graph which shows that, you know, if you have, there's like almost an optimum level of stress or arousal in people, whereby if it's too low and you're too relaxed, you don't perform very well. But once it gets too high, you can't perform very well either. And horses are exactly the same. So most of the time when I see problems with horses, it's because their arousal level is really high and we need to break it down. We need to make whatever exercise we're doing easier for the horse and help them to stay calmer. Now, when we're monitoring arousal level in horses, obviously we can look for the normal behavioral indicators that the horse is hypervigilant, the horse's, you know, its ears and its eyes are focused on everything in the environment, but not necessarily the rider or the handler. The horse may have a lot of muscular tension. But we also need to remember that there are different coping styles. Um, and this is exactly the same in all species. So when we talk about horses with a high level of arousal, with a negative affective state, so stressed horses, tense horses, people automatically think of the kind of fight or flight response. And this is what we call an active coping mechanism. So the horse sees something that they're fearful of and they try and run away from it. You know, the horse is fearful of clippers, someone's holding on to them, the horse barges them out the way. And if that's not going to work, the horse may resort, you know, if they feel that's their only option, they may resort to kicking or biting or striking out at people. But that's only two aspects of it. And I would say, you know, in terms of coping, you've got the active coping mechanisms where you've got fight, flight, and I would also add fidget. So maybe this is with a slightly lower level of arousal. But, you know, when you have a horse that's fairly relaxed and then you're going to do something with them, perhaps think about clipping them. And all of a sudden they have to rub their head on you or they have to sniff their floor or they have to start itching their side. And this is horses which are actually showing us that they're not very confident with what we're doing at that point in time. So they're starting to fidget. So there's three Fs, fight, flight and fidget. And they're all active, active coping mechanisms to stress. And then the, we also have horses which are what we call reactive copers. And this is where horses can freeze. And I think this is something that people miss a lot in horses. They will often say, you know, the horse was stood still and then they suddenly exploded. And I'd think about this a little bit like a rabbit. So 
the reason we call it reactive coping, we used to call it passive coping, but what we realised was that these animals will freeze and they will stand there and do nothing until they get to a certain threshold and that's when they may explode. A little bit like a rabbit might freeze in the headlights or when someone's approaching it until someone gets too far, too close to them, and then they may suddenly shoot off. So one of the most common scenarios I would see a horse freezing in would be when it comes to loading them onto the trailer. And honestly, if I had a pound for every time someone said to me, he's not scared, he's just been stubborn, because the horse plants itself on the ramp of the trailer or the lorry. But when you actually look at these horses, they're not calm and relaxed and enjoying life. They're actually really tense. They've gone into this freeze response whereby they just try and switch off to all the cues. And that may be people shouting at the horse, hitting the horse, pulling on the head collar. They just try and switch off to all of that as their coping mechanism until it gets to a certain level. And then the horse may suddenly shoot backwards or try and jump off the side. So recognising these different states in horses is really important for us to be able to optimise our training. And I'd say the biggest thing to look for is muscular tension. You know, look at the eye, look at the ears, um, look at the muzzle. The, the muzzle may become look longer, so the corner of the lip gets drawn back. The chin may become more prominent. But really look for just generalised muscular tension in this horse. And that will give you a really good indicator as to whether their level of arousal is acceptable or not. If you're riding them, you'll feel it in the way they move. Rather than being nice and loose and relaxed, the steps just become that little bit more jerky and tense. I hope you've enjoyed a little bit of an insight into different emotional states in horses, and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thank you, Gemma. Next week, Gemma will be back to talk about napping, and our interview will be with leading working hunter specialist Kelly Ward. Thank you for listening to this week's Horse and Hound podcast, supported by Veradus and their UK distributor Zebra. Talk to you next time. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.